Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 83. Are you interested in sharing your Python project with the broader world? Would you like to make it easily installable using pip? How do you create Python packages that share your code in a scalable and maintainable way? This week on the show, Real Python author and former guest Dane Hillard returns to talk about his new book, Publishing Python Packages. Dane shares his research into creating Python packages. We talk about the tools, techniques, and potential pitfalls of publishing your own packages. Dane also discusses his experiences unraveling projects and determining dependencies. We also cover Dane's recent conference talk at Pike Otham, titled Keeping Code Safe and Modern with Semantic Searches, and he shares some security tools and practices from the talk. This episode is brought to you by CData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data. SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Dane, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. So it's not been quite a year, but (laughs) pretty close. Yeah. Time is kind of warped lately. <laughs> Since I last talked to you, you've been working on your new book, but I thought we could maybe start by talking about a recent talk that you did, you actually just did, at PyGotham. So what was the talk about? Yeah, so the talk is about, uh, it's called Keeping Code Safe and Modern with Semantic Searches. And the idea is that you have a lot of signals that you can actually draw out of your code uh, to understand things like type safety and syntactic errors and common sort of constructs that are either dangerous or likely to produce bugs. And if you think about kind of the the Swiss cheese model to security, right, you can kind of apply the same thing to correctness of code. So the more more of these kind of patterns you can cover with different tooling, uh, the more likely you are to have safe operational code that you can, that you can deliver. And it specifically talks about this tool called SEMGRIP, which is not a Python-specific tool, but is very good at working with Python and kind of integrates with pre-commit and uh, CI tooling and all this stuff. And, you know, it's it's sort of like a generalized case of a linter, you can think of it as. Okay. Where you could use PyLint or Flakeate or something to to check all the things that are in those libraries. If you have something specific to your organization or you know specific to your project that you know you need to look for as problematic or something to produce a signal of some kind about you can kind of build those uh, in a custom way with tools like semgrep so okay and that's is it sem grep yeah i, I think i say it in the talk too i think it's short for semantic grep but i Okay. I don't know that there's like proof of that in their documentation. <laughs> okay, that's fine. And then just to kind of backtrack just a touch, you you mentioned this model of the Swiss cheese approach, and I'm guessing that is sort of uh, the idea that one slice of cheese may have a set of holes in it, but if you layer another piece of cheese, maybe at a different angle or something like that, that then, then the cos- those holes are going to be in different places and and maybe block things is that the premise yeah that's exactly right so uh, the goal is to get enough slices of cheese that there's no one path straight through all of the layers of security right right okay yeah that's interesting to me like the that i don't know i've had several people on talking about you know we're talking about packaging today but you know i've had a handful of people talking about kind of the the security and upkeep of packages and and you know the different types of things of that you kind of need to pay attention to so that's that sounds like a nice talk to kind of get people started uh, you know down that road of like continuing to look at the, the security of of your open source stuff 
Yeah. And there's this, you know, there's this, um, I don't know what to call it. There's a renewed emphasis maybe on shifting things left, right? So the earlier in your development process, you can get feedback about things, the better. Yeah. And as you think about these linters and things, the more you can really leverage those ideally before you ever commit your code in the first place, you know, the, the more likely it is that you'll continue having nice operational code in the future. Have you used other security type tools that do that kind of checking? They're not a sponsor currently, but Sneak recently sponsored the show. And I've looked at them as like another one that you know, kind of does like this sort of uh, cross-checking of your projects. Have you used stuff like that? Yeah, I haven't used them specifically, um, but I've used one called Sonar Cube, Okay, which again is kind of a cross-language uh, tool. And then I know there's tools like Bandit that uh, that look for, they do static, static analysis uh, at the command line. Yeah, those talks typically go live. I probably don't have a date right now, but probably a few weeks after this episode comes out, people could probably find it. Yeah, I would imagine so. And I wonder if any of it is available on Twitch too, because that's where they were streaming them from. Oh, okay. Because I know Twitch, you can kind of cut segments from streams, but I haven't checked. All right, well, if we can, we'll toss in a link there if we can find it to share. Yeah. You were on before, uh, and we were talking about the book, Practices of the Python Pro, and then we kind of got into a very philosophical discussion and the book was kind of more geared that way of this idea of like, okay, well, what is a pro? What is, you know, what does that mean? And that sort of, uh, was sort of a bit of a, you know, not only a mind state, but just kind of like a, a process state of like, you know, as you're moving along as a, a developer, but your new book is kind of coming at a very different tack. And I, I find that super interesting. Um, the new book is publishing Python packages so maybe we could talk a little bit about when you started writing this book and maybe the impetus of why you wanted to to tackle this topic. Yeah, the the driver for this came out of a desire and a need really to come up with a homogenous way to do packaging uh, within our organization. Okay. We have probably almost two dozen Python packages that we maintain and really some of those are much bigger than they should be. So continue to split that up further, but each was kind of developed organically and not all of them were following the same practices or had the same format for all of their configuration. And, you know, that, that gets very hard to maintain very quickly. So ended up, doing some research a couple of years ago now into some of the best practices at the time and had learned a lot about things found that I was rather behind in, uh, in what I knew about best practices for packaging and ultimately ended up building kind of a, a reference architecture, if you will, for publishing packages within the organization. And with, uh, with some of the, newer standards and developments in the packaging community in python how, how would you share that within the team so we actually have a what we call a reference architecture documentation uh, within our organization that we kind of share okay the best practices we've defined for a variety of things and then we built like a, a cookie cutter template for a python package that kind of incorporates all those things so you can kind of get a new package up and running rather quickly do you mind explaining briefly like what cookie cutter is? I think some people might think of that as just as a term, but it's actually a, a kind of a tool, right? Yeah. So cookie cutter is this really awesome tool that can, you can, you can take the heart of a, of a project, uh, the file structure and the file contents and template out the pieces that someone might want to change. And then you can, provide that uh, usually as a, a GitHub repository and people can actually create versions of that project with all those variables templated out. It has a nice command line interface and all that for bootstrapping a, a project from a template. So it kind of like uh, prompts you. Yeah, exactly. Like in, in a command line sense, right? So it kind of walks you through and then it builds, uh, I don't know, I want to call them stems, but these parts of all the files that are needed within the project. Um, so you could have like a cookie cutter for say 
Django or I saw one for, I think I talked about it on the show a little while ago about setting up things for like a Docker container and like being able to have it ready to go. What was funny about the article was the guy was actually <laughs> throwing out the majority of it, which was really strange. I'm like, why didn't you just make a new cookie cutter? <laughs> like, why are we like throwing away 80% of this? It was really kind of odd, but um, yeah, but yeah, it's a, that's a neat project. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would recommend it if you find yourself repeating yourself <laughs> with some regularity. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's interesting that a lot of the sort of source of this uh, started, you know, the sort of started make you think about like, okay, I need to do this within the organization. And then how, how soon did that move into you wanting to maybe turn it into a book? I guess as I learned a lot more about how far I was behind, uh, I also took stock of kind of across GitHub, what it looked like other people were doing. Uh, and I saw that a lot of people are still using things that I was using that seem, seem like they're the less recommended way of doing things. Uh, for example, using setup.py for dynamic, well, not for dynamic uh, information, but uh, using setup.py when you don't need dynamic information. Uh, it's better to use static metadata now, things like that. So just seeing where the industry is and even where the some of the tools have adopted certain PEPs so far kind of shows that there's still a lot of catching up to do and I know I was very behind even on what was possible or what was defined in some of those PEPs and standards. Okay. Just wanted to honestly like more start a discussion and, and make that more at the forefront than anything else. Yeah. So it sounds like a, a bit of a research project and sort of documenting your path in some ways. That's a really good way of putting it, I think, because where the first book was very much kind of a, I don't I, I don't know, I'd call it almost a thought piece from myself. Like, here are, here are the things that I think are interesting to think about. Right. This one is very much more uh, involved in, let's do some landscape analysis. Let's do some understanding. Let's read deeply several of these peps. And yeah, definitely feels like more research. And I, I never got very good at research in uh, in school, so <laughs> sort of learning some things for the first time. Yeah, I was terrible at it. I dropped out, um, <laughs> not because of it, but I, I dropped out of college. And part of my frustration was with the 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 whole. I guess it was one hundred two or whatever it was, English one hundred two. And I was just like, mm -hmm. "This is so much busy work." <laughs> and it was like frustrating to me because it was like I I'm like, man, there's you know, this is a long time ago. So I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I, I could automate this, I could do this and, and so forth. There should be ways to like make this process like so much smoother, but it would just seem like uh, turning in my note cards and all this sort of stuff was like, so yeah, I don't know, just wasn't for me. <laughs> so I dove deep into music and anyway, <laughs> never turned back. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. I was going to say that I recently also got a lot better at note taking Partly, partly driven by this book, I think, but also like when you get to when you when you start getting older, like it's much harder to retain information. Even even now, I'm not <laughs> I'm not that old, right? But it's harder and harder to keep all the context about everything in your head all the time, right? So note taking becomes super valuable, and so this kind of like learning to take notes, learning about research, learning about making arguments has all has all been very fresh on my mind. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Do you, have you developed like tools or systems for taking notes? And I, I know there's a, a bunch of interesting sort of platforms that I, I see some of the other authors uh, for real Python use. I'm, my notes are very scattered and I, I gather lots of them. Um, I'm using a tool called drafts to do all this, you know, basically two years of podcast stuff now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's nice because it's very portable across like all my digital devices. But do you, do you have some some tools that you like to use? Yeah, so I have tried a couple of them. Uh, in general, what I enjoy as a model is this kind of bi-directional linking note taking mm. uh, graph okay. graph based notes, um, and I think it tends to help me represent my thoughts a little more clearly than uh, hierarchical 
note-taking systems. And it, it supports a bit of kind of the scattered model if that, you know, works for you too. So I use Obsidian these days. Okay. And yeah, I've heard of that, you know, I wouldn't say it's significantly better or significantly worse than, than other offerings out there. But what I like is that it's Markdown and you can keep your Markdown with you. It doesn't have to live in the cloud. Those kind of aspects are helpful. CData software. Connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At CData, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and big data. Check out cdata.com to learn more. I guess maybe we could kind of roll back to the core concepts here of talking about packaging. And, and David and I definitely had lots of episodes talking about packaging and changes in the landscape of packaging. But maybe, I don't know if I've def- had anybody help kind of define the, the kind of the concept of like, okay, well, you know, technically what are we talking about with, you know, what is a package in this case? As far as the book title, Publishing, publishing Python Packages, is concerned, um, that's speaking to the distribution package definition, okay. meaning something that you publish out to some place where others can access and install it from. It's a you know bit of an overloaded term in Python because you have import packages as well. Right. But uh, so in the in the general sense, uh, a distribution package or a software package, if you want to even go that general, is kind of this idea of coupling coupling code whether it's source code or compiled code of some kind along with metadata about that code and maybe some supporting data files and things like that so this applies across several systems you know linux package managers and npm ruby gems and all that stuff kind of has the same high level concept i guess about um coupling software with metadata so that you can search for it and install it and sort of build on each other. Yeah. Okay. In the case of Python, the, the, one of the major package managers that, you know, people are using, I guess that term can be confusing. Sometimes people might think of that as, you know, it's not a person (laughs) who's managing (laughs) the packages, but this idea that the packages, you know, that we've talked about um, PyPI, the Python package index, but the package manager is more of a, a a tool for, you know, people can sort of use to access the, the package index. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And I don't like you, like you're alluding to, it kind of depends who you ask, but package managers can also do the dependency resolution task uh, that kind of fits into that space. So, right. That was a big conversation I had last year with uh, the people from from PIP talking about their new uh, ways of you know how it's going to resolve. That actually we're rewriting the resolver right and updating it, and so that was like important. Like make sure you update PIP. Yeah, <laughs> I know it always asks you <laughs> <laughs> um, potentially depending on your your um, distribution of Python. Right, um, but yeah, cool. So then maybe we could. I think the idea of like the the term publishing is kind of interesting too. Like how how is that unique? Like, you know, in this case, like what makes it a published package? Yeah. So I think that starts to get at this idea that you've created some code that's useful and you may even put enough configuration around it to be able to do like an editable install from your file system, let's say. Okay, but if you want to be able to share that code in a in a useful way with someone else, ideally in a way that doesn't involve them having to clone your GitHub repo and fiddle with it to work on their system and so on, publishing a Python package means actually creating a built distribution, maybe that's platform specific if you have 
if it's not a pure Python package and putting that somewhere, like I said, that other people can access it. And that could mean the Python package index. It could mean a private index that your organization maintains. Right. You know, it could mean Anaconda. Yeah. So there's a, there's a variety of these kind of locations that it could be used. We, we talked about that idea of like the internal repositories and there was that weird kind of thing where people were spoofing names <laughs> that was kind of messing up people's, um, you know, the repositories that were inside of like organizations, which I thought was interesting by creating names um, on the greater, uh, larger ones that, you know, things could go and look for. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I guess maybe we could talk about, you mentioned there that some of the things that you're going to need to think about, you know, if you're going beyond just trying to share the code, like, like you said on GitHub, the, the, the problem with that potentially is you would have to write some pretty detailed instructions that explain, you know, what platform this is for and, um, you know, what, what this code works for. But in the case of setting it up to publish, you are going to need to go through a lot of these kind of very detailed steps of setting it up so that the Python software that you're sharing in this case can be built and, you know, run on a huge variety of people's machines. I mean, of course you can limit it also. Like I recently talked to Will McGugan about um, his project textual and currently he is, it's only working on kind of Unix based stuff. And so he doesn't, he's got to figure out how to get it you know, working on, on windows stuff too. Cause there'll be specific things because of the, the way it's interacting with these terminals. But to me, that I think that's really interesting that, that this sort of idea of like, okay, in some ways you're trying to remove your computer setup from the equation. I don't know if I'm explaining that right. Is that part of the deal? Yeah, I kind of follow what you mean by that, which is that here and now, at least, uh, most development we do takes place on our local machine. Right. You have things like GitHub whatever whatever that product is called that's that's doing development in the cloud and stuff now too but largely we we tend to do development on our machines and that represents or or may represent some very small subset in some cases of of your target audience like my taking myself as an example i don't own a windows machine so you know i think i think we have my, my partner has a windows machine but uh if we, if she didn't have that, I would have no access to Windows in any manner, uh, just because that's the technology I've happened to buy into. Uh, so if I ever want to build something that targets Windows, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss if I'm thinking uh, about what's possible on my own machine. So then you start to to think about what's what's out there that you can build in something like GitHub Actions or Jenkins or, or whatnot uh, that has maybe a Docker image that's available to build for a variety of different platforms. And there are there are these tools out there for, for Python. There's like CI build wheel. Okay. And the, the mini Linux wheel allows you to, to kind of build for a, a wide variety of Linux platforms as well. So yeah, you, you kind of want to think about your computer as the the means but not necessarily the end okay because you don't want to end up in the in the situation where you say like works on my machine right (laughs) (laughs) especially if yeah you know if you're sort of you know quote unquote publishing it it'd be like sending out a magazine that you know nobody can read um (laughs) so they had like a special like reader or had to come to your house to read it you know right So. (laughs) so in this case it's interesting to think about, like, I feel like this is, a, you know, a, a kind of a different audience, right? Like that you've decided to write this book for um, compared to the Python Pro uh, book. Like, who would you say, you know, specifically this this book is for? Yeah, where I think the first book was really sort of a broad, broad audience, sort of maybe maybe skewed beginner book. This one, I think, is certainly a, a more niche subject and, and probably more toward the intermediate uh, part of the spectrum. Okay. And I, I think if you're someone who's finding themselves wanting to share their code, finding that the way they're 
organization currently shares code that isn't packaging uh, and you want to learn more about how to package in a way that means you can install things that your organization has developed yeah. just the same way you would install something, you know, like requests or NumPy or any of the really popular libraries. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where this is meant to, to bring you up to speed. Yeah. So, so instead of like having to find the readme file that Bob or Jane wrote <laughs> explaining how to install this particular yeah. set of tools, they could simply, you know, use something like pip and point it at a, you know, internal repository and, and be ready to go. I think that's really cool. Were there other experiences that you had um, maybe outside of your work environment that made you want to write this book? Yeah. I mean, we, well, uh, you say outside the work environment, we did open source a package uh, as well. That's kind of a, a builder for rest clients built on top of requests and kind of is a declarative model for uh, defining API endpoints and things. Okay. So we've we've got a microservice-oriented architecture and found ourselves kind of repeating a lot of the same, here's the way to fetch the host, and here's the way to get to the path, and here's a way to do service discovery. So we kind of, kind of abstracted that all into a package that we thought others might find useful. So we open-sourced that. I maintained a couple of other open source packages, none of which were, you know, particularly popular, I guess. It's not like I'm uh, managing something like textual uh, at the moment, but just seeing the kinds of things that can go wrong and the kinds of, yeah, even the kinds of code review that can happen. Um, I think there, there's something to this general idea of maintainership, right? That, uh, is often considered a, a significant burden, and rightfully so. I think a lot of the discussion is about attitude and abuse and conversation and feedback, which I, I think right. this won't solve, uh, right? But yeah, potentially. <laughs> if if there are, if there's any part of the burden that you can unload into an automated process, like I, I would hope that people can can take advantage of that. So, you know, if you're if you're finding your team is code reviewing and saying you know, the formatting of these lines isn't as readable as it could be, or you're using single quotes instead of double quotes. Uh, don't, don't make that a people problem. Try and try and standardize on that and make a machine tell you that. <laughs> yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Those, those nice code formatters kind of can take care of those, uh, those discussions without it really ever having to be elevated. Yeah. And so the book goes through some of that too, and, and talks about, you know, how to, automate a lot of your core workflow to keep that out of your way and let you focus on you know, whatever it is your package is actually trying to do. Okay. I thought about going down this line of questioning because I haven't done this process. I've, I've seen, you know, some, some of the resources that, you know, real Python has, and then obviously, you know, reading through your book and, and covering this topic over the last year and a half, I've thought about it for, my own purposes, like, okay, well, you know, do I have something that I, I want to do this, do this with? There's a author, Christopher Trudeau, who I work with a lot, and he's created this sort of tool that he uses for his video courses that kind of types out a lot of the stuff. So he's not having to do live typing, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, instead of having to like correct mistakes as he goes and stuff. And I, I found it a, kind of a neat tool. And so then as I review his projects, I, I'm, I can simply just pip install that particular package and, and work with it. And so I think of that as like kind of this sort of nice, sort of small package. Is, is that a good place to start is to, to start with just like a, like a personal project, you know, in, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I didn't dive all the way through the book and it's um, currently a Manning early access and so it's not, you know, all up there to check out entirely, but would you say that that's a good plan? Start with like a small personal project? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And I would say from one perspective, anything that helps you learn is, is good enough, right? Okay. So if you're, if you're newer to packaging and you need to understand the ropes, starting with something like that is, is perfectly fine. And there's even, you know, 
I don't know how many people know this, but PyPI has its own test PyPI also. So you can do a lot of like, okay, I, I don't want to, I don't want them to get mad at me too much, but you can, you can do a bit of like junk and fiddling publishing there uh, without worry that it will end up in, in the real PyPI in a way that will actually get used out in the wild too much. Um, okay. And I think that's a good way to uh, learn the ropes, understand the kinds of errors you might encounter during publishing gaps in your metadata, things like that. You know, you could also spin up a, I think they have Docker containers for like a locally hosted PyPI type mirror thing. Okay. That you could sort of go through the steps to publish to? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, from that perspective, I, I think it's really good to kind of get your hands dirty and, and really understand things so that they aren't magic. Yeah. And then <laughs> the other side of it too is, you know, you mentioned earlier that sort of package name squatting was a security issue. Yeah. I also think it's kind of a a hygiene issue in some sense. Like I always think back to when early days of any social media platform, right? Where you're like dying to get the username that's your name or, or like handle you always use. <laughs> sure. And then you find someone registered it three years ago and has zero posts and no profile picture. Uh, you're like, why did you need that? I need it. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same thing on a, on a package index. So when you find something already has your name, that you wanted it's it's used up and you can't really maybe there are exceptional cases to this but you can't really just switch out from underneath people what that package actually represents yeah and pypi also doesn't have namespacing at the moment so it's all just one flat global namespace that was interesting that i think that that's something that I want to say it was Dustin Ingram. They're, they're working on it, right? Yeah, yeah, he was talking about it, right? How um, a couple different packaging things are starting to do that, which I think is great. Yeah. It might it might have only been on his wish list. I don't remember for sure. Okay, all um, right. But it's certainly yeah. something well, that's being thought about, right? Yeah, I thought it like, mm, gosh, I'll have to go back and look. But yeah, that I I... You know, <laughs> I think that would be really handy for, you know, a variety of organizations to, to, to think about that. Mm -hmm. Not so much for, you know, individuals or sing, singular projects, but, you know, if a bunch of stuff kind of goes together, then that might be useful and also kind of <laughs> limit some of the namespace pollution of, you know, all these things that are out there. Right. Um, I mean, NPM is one, JavaScript is sort of notorious for having a bazillion packages uh, because there's no batteries included in the language and all that. Right. And they've actually been pretty successful with the namespacing model. So lots of major projects that started with sort of one package have since split out into sort of the core package and all these peripherals that people might need. And they've put those all under a namespace. So it's, you're always clear that this is the official thing uh, because it's in that namespace. But you don't have to pollute the flat global namespace with all those different things. So nice. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that kind of comes into play more mm -hmm. kind of diving into the book about how your approach is different. In this case, there's a lot more, you know, code and, and sort of taking people through the steps, which I, I you know, I think is great, especially in this, like the, the whole point of it is to, like you said, to just, do this thing, <laughs> you know, get your hands dirty and actually uh, try it out. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the risk that you run there is to make it very recipe like, okay. Which in an article or a blog post or something like that, where you're really just trying to hit home on here's, here's how to go from zero to one on this thing uh, is a perfectly good way to do it. When you're, when you're kind of going at a, at the depth of a book, uh, it can be, it can, it can get very formulaic, I guess, uh, to say, here's the sample, write that code, run that code. Here's the next sample, write that code, run that code. Uh, so I really want to, I, I find myself, I guess, being careful about making sure that the teaching is actually happening underneath all that. Right. So yeah, the code samples should really kind of drive home the concepts a lot of these concepts are really are really difficult to understand, right? So yeah, I definitely see that. There's lots of 
references inside of it and in uh, explanations of these sort of core concepts um because there is you know there's a lot of there's a lot of background to cover you know like like i said i've tried to just touch it multiple times from the podcast sense but i feel like a book is really kind of the place to go for this because you have so many different uh sort of tools that can be used in this process and and you're diving deeper into those as you go you you really cover a lot about automating um but also testing you know which is crucial to this whole (laughs) process um which makes sense to me what are other things that you you thought about in this process of you know you know turning it into a, a book that sort of expands it from being like an article or whatever are there other things that you thought about that felt like okay this definitely needs to be included yeah i would say at a high level my my thought process there was kind of like a lot of articles focus on you know here's how to do testing with talks or here's how to do pi test here's how to you know they're they're sort of a theme to to it and it shows you one way to do one thing what what a book needs to do in in many cases and and what i'm trying to do here is like there's this there's this long thread through the thing which is that you need to get from having some code to having a package of code right and so the book actually tries to get to that very quickly it's not published code it's not um pretty code uh, by any means but it's like you've now got a packaged piece of code by the way if you want to publish this thing and maintain it uh, and not get totally burnt out there's all these other things you're going to end up doing anyway so why don't we talk about how to maintain all of that in a reasonable scalable way so that includes testing like you mentioned it includes type checking uh, it includes automating the actual publishing once you get there yeah Uh, it includes at the end i hope to kind of talk about like okay now you've published this thing and you've got an open source package you might want other people to contribute to it so (laughs) yeah how do you make sure you have a inviting community built around that so it's really i i have this interest in making sure that most things i put out in the world are thought about holistically and it doesn't always mean that i am going to go into the depth that any particular area deserves but i more so appreciate the end-to-end view and the big picture of like what is it we're really trying to do here yeah i feel like you know we we talked about that you know even though you feel like this is uh, has a lot more step-by-step kind of stuff in it there's still a lot of that philosophical thoughts that are in this like one of the areas that I thought was really interesting is you talk about, you know, thinking about the code itself. Like you mentioned uh, stuff about your work and how certain portions of the code and way things that are grouped or organized, it may make sense that, that these should be separated out. And so you have a lot of concepts that you're, you're kind of covering to, to make sure that, that, you know, again, instead of it just being like a, a straight up how to guide, you're adding a lot of the why um, or the, the thought about it in that sense. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And again, the risk is sounding like I'm meandering all over the place. Right. So <laughs> sure. Hoping I haven't uh, made myself just sort of a, uh, seem like I'm, I'm just wandering around blindly too much, but I think it's, important to I, I don't know there's there's two types of development for me really uh one is i know exactly the outcome i'm looking for and i'm going to go i know the line i want to change and i know the test i want to change and i'm just going to go change those test pass okay great done then there's also the g i want to change this code i know the last time i did it was kind of hard the tests have coverage but i'm not sure if it's the right coverage uh i don't feel great about making like doing any big lifts in this area at the moment but i i think i'll need to and 
by the way, there's all this other stuff in the way, uh, like once I make the change, I need the test to pass, I need the code to be formatted properly, I need the package to publish successfully, you know, so it, it can get kind of, if not overwhelming, at least tedious and kind of want it to kind of want to give people a sense of what kinds of processes are possible for them that help them do more uh, actual development. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't want to say it's easy, but the, like it's fairly formulaic in the sense that it truly is a formula that you're, you're setting up to, to discuss, you know, okay, this is how you could configure continuous integration so that it, it's going to, you know, continually publish this package and, and run it through these processes and so forth. But to take a step back and say, okay, but you know, have you thought about like how the codes organized also <laughs> like before you, you decide to, to do this, which I thought was kind of interesting. The, the idea, like you, you're talking about cohesion and encapsulation and I thought that was interesting. Like, is that something that at your work that you're like having to think about, okay, like how, how could I divide up the, this code so that it makes sense? And then I guess you, you use this term of decomposition. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Like what does it mean to, to have higher cohesion? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a really good question the challenge I found myself with in some of our code, uh, I mentioned a lot of these had developed organically. We were actually in a place where we were installing some of these packages from the file system rather than publishing them and then installing them. Okay. And what ended up happening because there's no true division there, you know, all, all the code on the file system can access all the code on the file system if it really wants to. And what ended up happening is we had this kind of circular dependency or at least tangled dependency situation so bad that I had to write like a, a script to spit out a, a graph viz visualization of what was actually happening, right? To, oh, wow. uh, to see what we could actually extract and publish. So, okay. you know, this, this concept of dependency hell, right? That you have diamond dependencies and this package depends on these two and they both depend on different versions of this other package gets even harder when you're doing it all from the local file system and then find yourself wanting to extract some code. So this whole idea of kind of modularization and yeah. directed graphs uh, so that things only depend on each other in one direction is really helpful for uh, ensuring that code it doesn't have the wrong abstraction sometimes. Uh, it doesn't have the wrong sort of architecture and organization because otherwise you find yourself depending on things that were never meant to be depended on. Uh, you sort of, the blast radius of changes are hard to understand sometimes too. Yeah. So you mentioned using, you know, like a tool to sort of graph out what was happening inside of that. Did that help to, I mean, obviously, it's going to point to those sort of circular or diamond shapes or other kinds of shapes that that are, you know, kind of creating these funky, redundant dependency kind of stuff. At that point, then, I'm trying to think, like, how do you even start to tackle <laughs> those situations? I mean, I guess it starts to give you some some of the instructions in that process, but were there steps that you take right after that to say, okay, we need to, you know, tackle this first? Yeah, so it, it was actually really fun in a certain way once we got this visualization because you could finally point at things and say, "Oh, that one! If we if we could just publish that one, okay, <laughs> you know, it would it would make all these other ones so much easier. Or all these other ones would suddenly be able to be published. So nice. by visualizing it, you actually get this. You know, if you see a node and all the arrows coming to it are flowing in the same direction, it kind of tells you like. I can I can publish this one now because it's not dependent on anything else in this graph. Things depend on it, but it doesn't depend on anything else. And that's when you can that's when you know that it's publishable. Because otherwise you have this chicken and egg problem, right? If two packages depend on each other or have a, a cycle between them in the graph, 
you can't ever publish them because they'll they depend on something that's not published. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Which which was published first? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Probably probably there's a way you could manage to do it if you if you really tried. But yeah. So uh, it helped us get a sense for which things were already publishable that were hard to see just by kind of staring at the code. And then, like I said, once you pick certain ones off, new ones become publishable. Um, and we're still actually trying to get a last few of those. And that's because those actually don't have very good encapsulation and cohesion. So they're these kind of mega packages that do a bunch of different stuff for a bunch of different people. And as a result, it's a big ball of mud and we just have to find the right pieces to chip off of it and extract so that, uh, again, all of the dependencies in that graph kind of flow one way. Okay. So the, I, I understand the, the flowing of it and then cohesion is the kind of the concept of that, that they, they stick together properly. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So like, like things together, um, birds, of, birds of a feather, if you will. Right. So, right. You don't have all loop sides of Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to have some hooks too to be able to get them to attach and and work together. Okay, cool. So I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other steps that are involved in this process that that may go beyond even what's in an organization, though I, I'm sure that this would be crucial there. But you know, how much of this process kind of can be involved in trying to documenting, you know, like what's in the package. And is that something that you had to spend a lot of time thinking about too? Like how do we document our packages and, and create the, create the required <laughs> tools for that? Cause th th there are certain, I, I would guess there are certain sort of requirements for documentation to, to publish to these indexes. Is that correct? You, would think so okay there there's a minimal amount needed i would say uh your package needs i'm not i'm not going to remember all the core pieces that are necessary off the top of my head but like you kind of just need a name and maybe a description and mm, okay that might that might be kind of everything so it, you you can get away with a lot but that being said i am a big proponent of documentation and in particular documentation that lives as close to the code that's related as possible. So tooling like Sphinx uh, is something that I'm very big on because it, it sort of takes your doc strings directly from all your classes and methods and functions and uh, modules and pulls that into a documentation system. And the book, the book covers that. So you're kind of able to write it once inside the code and publish sort of, you know, external documentation or uh, I've seen like, you know, web docs and other things. And a lot of that's coming out of a tool like that. That's exactly right. And it, you know, it, it does the automated part with the code, but you can also write prose alongside it and okay. uh, have it all kind of fit together nicely. So the book, the book goes into that as well. Yeah. In one of the later chapters. And was that ever a struggle at your work for creating documentation like that? Oh Yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it, I think it's the stereotypical programmer attitude that like, oh, the code documents itself, right? <laughs> when you, when you get a team of a big enough size, depending what your code architecture and your team architecture is like and, and how you all operate, you, you might find yourself going into some other team's code at some point and needing to change it and wondering what the heck this thing or that thing does. Right. And having that documentation is one heck of a benefit when when you need <laughs> yeah. to uh know more about why somebody added this method and and all the reasons behind the logic that it has and we we ended up kind of i don't know i i've started i've started really trying to leverage existing systems right so the same way that sphinx can do interoperability with other sphinx doc sites so like django may link to a page on the requests documentation 
and they, it knows exi- it, it knows something about the structure of that documentation based on the fact that they're both Sphinx documentation sites. Oh, okay. And so we actually ended up kind of doing the same thing. So each package we publish has its own isolated Sphinx documentation, and then we have a inter-Sphinx thing kind of connecting them all. That's nice. It, it saves time in having to restructure or relink those kinds of things. Yeah, and you start to get this kind of rich ecosystem around it, right? Which is is what's out there in open source, um, but not as not as prevalent within an organization. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's about an important step in the development and sharing of your code. The course is titled "Documenting Python Code: A Complete Guide." The course is based on a real Python article by James Mertz. And in the course, instructor Andrew Steven takes you through the reasons that documenting your code is so important, the differences between commenting and documenting, best practices for doc strings, and he covers additional tools, references, and documentation projects. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn best practices for documenting your code and to learn about tools like Sphinx, which we discussed during this week's episode. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. What were some of the things that you were most excited about in sharing, you know, inside the book? Honestly, I, I like sharing things that I myself was learning along the way, right? So I mentioned there's a lot of research and um, yeah, something I haven't worked a ton with is non-Python extensions. So understanding kind of the workflow for building package out of uh, Cython code or a C extension and sort of visualizing the build workflow behind all that was really interesting to me and kind of getting a, a really solid handle around Python build backends and build frontends, which are the the newer uh, standard around how packaging actually happens, was was also really fun. So, I'm, you know, hoping that is something not a lot of people know about and would find useful in the book. Yeah, because it's kind of going through a bit of a change right now, right? I mean, in the sense that the, there are um, older tools that are somewhat being deprecated for this process and, and some newer tools that are being preferred. Is that, am I correct in thinking that? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty accurate characterization. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's in flux uh, to a degree, I, not to say that the standards are in flux. Right. So the, the PEP that defines this build system was actually written. I'm, I'm looking six years ago, almost to the day. Okay. So that's a that's a while ago, um, but there are like the, the tooling that people are maintaining is only just catching up to this in some cases. So it's it's interesting to see what that adoption gap has been, and and in some cases, I'm sure for good reason. Uh, there's a lot to there's a lot of shift, and there's a lot of people that these tools are supporting, uh, and it would be. A detriment to the community to to get it wrong or to to do it too fast and and got to give everybody time <laughs> yeah and in some cases this stuff is all still sort of put on the developer because uh, there's not a great yeah. way to hide it inside the the management tools so not only are you you're not really just changing it under the hood in some cases you really have to think about the developer experience directly so uh it's not an easy problem that's for sure yeah yeah do you have like additional resources that you'd want to share good additional things that people can kind of look at yeah so there's like the python packaging authority who who kind of manages the python package index and and no well they they manage the python package index and you know they do provide a, a very good guide it's it's rather abridged i guess um you know it doesn't yeah probably for smart reasons uh, it doesn't cover in depth all the different ways you could go about doing things and 
what is there, I think it is really good. And I guess it's a, it's a bit of a, maybe a cop out to the question, but one way that I learn a lot of stuff is by doing sort of a global search on GitHub. Okay. A, a really common thing that I search for is, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking to understand more about how I should use this field or what the syntax is or anything like that, I'll typically add the name of the, key, uh, the field and then do like file name colon setup.cfg. And that will just show me every file called setup.cfg on GitHub that has that field in it. And then I can just kind of look through those results and see like, okay, these five people are using it this way. These 10 seem to be using it this way. And then everyone else is using it this way. So then you can kind of start to understand the nuances of those use cases. And that's what I mean by like landscape analysis that I mentioned earlier. So oh, okay. it really yeah. gives you a sense of like the real world in the wild type of, of usage. So, yeah, I think of like, um, Brett Cannon had this post about Py project Tommel, mm-hmm. but I could see using that technique to, to look at Tommel files to kind of get an idea of, of like what's going on with them. Absolutely. But yeah, that kind of, uh, just, to see how people are using it. That's been a common theme for people, you know, again, researching code and kind of learning it, but not thought of it of like these other files that are not necessarily pure Python files. These are files that give instructions to all these other tools, right? Yeah. And in some cases provide metadata and and things. So that's where you're, you know, a pack again, a package is like software with metadata, right? So, right, yeah, it's uh, it's an ecosystem. Uh, another another thing that I that occurs to me is uh, we were talking about PyGotham. Simon Wilson had a great, really like speedy talk where he he basically went through the process of starting from zero and publishing a package to PyPI. Okay. In like 10 minutes. So <laughs> definitely, definitely check that out too. Um, cool. And he has an example repo that he, he links to there that you can go uh, look at as well. So nice. So I have these weekly questions. I wanted to start with the first one is what are you excited about in the world of Python? Yeah, I think it's, it's gotta be what, what Will McGugan is working on right now. <laughs> uh, you know, rich and textual both are are really cool. We're using Invoke for a couple of things right now, and they're fairly simple tools, but I could imagine if we ever wanted to kind of enrich that experience uh, and do it in a, in a Python way, that those tools would be the first place I'd look. Um, yeah, I'm excited to just try to find a couple of projects I might use in it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. All right, so what do you want to learn next? Again, it doesn't have to be Python-specific in this case. Yeah, I have been spending a lot of time. I mentioned modularization. Yeah. I've been spending a lot of time on that concept, generally speaking. So my sort of full-time job is in thinking about our front-end development experience uh, and delivery and architecture. And a common problem that arises is coupling between teams. So again, tying to some of the things we were talking about earlier and yeah. thinking about how you can really get teams to a point where they can operate and deliver independently. And on the back end, for a long time, there's been this pattern of microservice-oriented architecture. On the front end, it's been a little less of a clear path, uh, if you will. But Webpack 5 came out with this thing called Module Federation, which allows you to do like runtime integration of code through the browser over the network and it's blowing my mind i mean i've I've wrapped my head around a lot of that but thinking about the ramifications and how we can leverage that best to get teams developing and deploying code that might appear all together on one page but that no one team has to kind of coordinate or be the the delivery manager for if you will cool so that's that's a really cool thing to check out if you're in the front end development space at all. Okay. Nice. So do you have any specific shout outs or plugs? You mentioned a couple of talks and other things there, but do you have 
additional stuff you want to call out? Yeah, I mean, I would say shout out to the Pi Gotham folks, uh, organizers. The conference was was really fun. It, talks were pre-recorded. It was an online conference, uh, such as such as life right now, right? But right, yeah, they really made it fun, and every talk had an American Sign Language interpreter and full captioning, and wow, cool, just really well done. So, cheers to all those folks. Nice. I guess we could do a final plug for the for the book. Yeah, so publishing Python packages available in early access with Manning. First four chapters are available. You can use the code AU35HIL, AU35HIL, okay. for 35% off the book. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, Dane. It's been really fun talking to you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope to do it again sometime. All right. Don't forget, you can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Dane Hillard for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.